0: I just, if somebody, if somebody has him, and if he is alive, I, I, I want him to be safe, I want him to be feeling loved, and I want someone to be looking after him. Because to imagine that something else is going on, mm. we, can't live, we can't live a life like that. It's not right for him. We, we need to know where he is and we need to know what happened to him. Because we can't live forever like this. His sister can't grow up never knowing what happened to her brother. They are the
1: heartbreaking words of the foster parents of William Tyrrell, The little boy dressed in his favourite Spider-Man outfit who disappeared almost five years ago and has never been seen since. On September the 12th, 2014, just after 10.30 in the morning, William was laughing and playing in his grandmother's yard. Suddenly, the three-year-old vanished. There were no screams, no suspects running from the scene and almost five years on, his family still has no answers. I'm Natasha Belling.
2: And I'm Leah Harris. We're journalists from 10 News First and throughout this podcast, we will take you through every critical moment of one of Australia's greatest unsolved crimes. We will also reveal some shocking new bombshell developments that will change the way you think and feel about this case that has baffled the best investigators in the world. And in a bizarre and very concerning
1: twist, the lead investigator in William's case, Detective Chief Inspector Gary Jubelin has been arrested and charged with a number of offences. And still, almost five years on, there is no sign of the little boy that disappeared without a trace. This is Where's William Tyrrell. Leah, you were one of the first journalists on the scene when William first disappeared in 2014. Why is this case so personal for you?
2: I think that every crime journalist has a case that becomes really personal and all-consuming for them. And this one is mine not just because I've been covering it for almost five years now from the first day that he disappeared, but also because I've had the privilege of getting to know his foster family, his foster parents specifically, and they are people that are just so undeserving of what has happened to them and they're just so devastated and just so desperate to find out what happened to him.
1: You can't even begin to imagine as a parent losing your child is something no one should ever go through. But for them the thing I think many of us struggle with is the fact that they don't know what's happened to William. You know them so incredibly well. Is that what they struggle with, is not having any answers?
2: That is absolutely the hardest part of this. It's hard enough losing a child in any circumstances, but to not know where he is or what's happened to him has just been agonising for them. And not just for them, but for their foster daughter, who is William's biological sister, for her to grow up, not knowing what happened to her little brother, that's their worst nightmare. And they're just, as I said, so desperate to get some answers and to have some closure.
0: We have to watch his sister learn to play, and learn myself. to be an only child. It's heartbreaking.
1: There's been some key developments over the last few months and few years with the ongoing police investigation that has really forced William's foster parents to come to you and to reveal something that we've never heard before about William, about the investigation. Tell us about these interviews.
2: Yeah, so when I first approached them about this podcast, they were very apprehensive about being involved because they are very private people and they do prefer to remain anonymous and to not speak publicly. But there has been some recent changes in the police investigation that we will get to later, but those changes made them make the decision to tell their full story in this podcast. And when I say full story, I mean things that they've never spoken about before They're going to go into exactly what life has been like since he disappeared and what their hope for the future of the investigation is.
1: Do they think William is still alive?
2: They hope that he is still alive but they are very realistic about the chances of that being the case.
1: But one I think is very powerful and in these new revealing interviews you have found out is they refuse to give up, don't they?
2: That's right. They vow to never, ever give up on William. Will you ever give up fighting for
0: him? Never. Never.
3: Never. Till my last
0: breath. Absolutely. We will not give up on William and we will not let other people give up on him. He is too important to give up on. Never going to happen, ever.
1: Leah, that was part of the compelling new interviews that you've conducted with William's foster parents. What are we set to learn through these new interviews?
2: So this interview is not only the first one they've done in several years, but it's also the most honest and candid interview that they have ever done. So they will reveal a lot of new detail. They'll talk about a lot of things they haven't spoken about before, and there will be some very compelling new information that they're going to reveal, but we will get to that later. And what's key to note here is that they have always remained anonymous and that's not just because they are very private people, which they are, and they do prefer to remain anonymous for the sake of William's biological sister. They want her to be protected from this and to not be associated with this case But they are also covered by federal legislation that prevents the identification of anyone involved in a foster situation. So we will be using pseudonyms for them throughout this podcast.
1: Leah, in regards to the family being very private and to remain anonymous, as you mentioned before, that's because of legislation with the foster parent situation. But unfortunately, the other side of that is because they were so private and they haven't been identified during this ongoing investigation, that did raise suspicion with a lot of people. How has the family dealt with that?
2: So that's something that they are very aware of, that there is a public perception out there that perhaps they are still suspects and and they are viewed with a suspicious eye. And they are aware of that and they understand that. That suspicion comes from the fact that they do remain anonymous and there is a mystery surrounding them. But as they've told me, they know they have nothing to hide. So... All they can do is hold on to that and try to move forward without putting too much emphasis on that.
1: Leah, almost five years since little William disappeared in 2014, there's already been so many twists and turns in this very bizarre case. And now an extraordinary development as we are recording this episode with Gary Jubelin. Tell us about that.
2: So Detective Chief Inspector Gary Jubelin has actually been charged with four offences under the Telecommunications Act and the allegations are that he illegally recorded a conversation with a person involved in the William Tyrrell case, someone that he was interviewing in his investigative um, capacity and he denies these allegations and he will argue in court that he had a lawful reason to be recording the conversation, but we will get to that in a later episode and we'll also take everyone through the events that led to this.
1: The first thing I think about, Leah, is the fact that this is happening. We've seen one of the chief investigators on the case arrested and charged and William is still missing.
2: Yeah, while police are investigating Gary and investigating his alleged misconduct, there is a little boy who is still yet to be found.
1: So we're set to learn more about Gary's involvement in a later episode, but this episode, what are we set to learn about the William Tyrrell case?
2: So this episode will detail all the events that led to William being on Benaroon Drive in Kendall that day where he disappeared.
1: Leah, something that certainly resonates with all of us is William was always filled with so much love and laughter and was happy in all of those beautiful home videos we've seen over the many years... Let's take a listen to some audio from a home video from a holiday the family took
3: before he disappeared. How are you enjoying your holidays so far, William? Good. Good? Well, look at the camera and say, good. Good. Good, thank you.
0: Good, thank you.
2: So in that home video, he's sitting in a cafe in Bali with his foster father, who I'm going to call Peter throughout this podcast. And... He's sitting at a table, chocolate smeared on his face and it was on that holiday that they actually bought him that Spider-Man costume and that's because he was obsessed with Spider-Man at the time and he was thrilled with that new outfit and he wore it every chance he got.
1: And, of course, that was the outfit that he wore just minutes before he disappeared and hasn't been seen since.
2: Yeah, and that image of him wearing that outfit has since become very iconic and widely known all over Australia and the world as being associated with this case.
1: In regards to their trip to Kendall, where of course William disappeared, take us through Kendall. What's the association? Because the foster grandmother lived in Kendall and recently lost her husband, and they were travelling up to Kendall to see the grandma, correct?
2: That's right. So, William's foster mother, who I'll call Jane, her mother and father lived in Kendall. Her father had passed away in February. So, her mother, who I'll call Margaret, was living in that big house in Kendall by herself since then. And she'd actually decided to downsize, move to a smaller place in a nearby town. So they were going up to Kendall that weekend to help her pack up the house and make the arrangements for that to happen. But they had been to Kendall many times before with both of the kids. They all knew it very well. The kids had their own toys there. They knew the house. So it was a pretty normal weekend.
3: It was normally normally a a long weekend, like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday or Saturday, Sunday, Monday or something like that. might be once every three or four months, um, you know, especially, um, uh, you know, Nana's birthday or uh, what it might be. The bit, there'd be an occasion, but it's also a good time to catch up. So probably about a half a dozen times.
0: We would go out. I mean, they were young, so quite limited with what you do with, with young children. And there was a street party, so... Went to the street right. party. Christmas, that was a yeah. Christmas party. Yep. Christmas. Um, but and it was more family oriented rather than go out and engage with lots of people. Mm-hmm. So, as my parents were elderly, so um, I was spending time with them.
1: And Lira, a critical piece of this puzzle is the fact that they actually went up to Kendall earlier. They decided at the last minute to leave on Thursday night rather than go on Friday as initially planned.
2: That was actually a surprise to even Jane's mother, who wasn't expecting him until the Friday. Peter finished work early on the Thursday and Jane managed to get the two pet cats into boarding, so they made a snap decision to drive up on the Thursday afternoon and be there by that evening to spend a long weekend in Kendall.
1: And the children didn't even know they were going, did they, because they organised to pick them up from daycare as well?
2: That's right. So they packed up the car, drove to daycare and picked up William and his sister, who I'm going to call Lindsay, and they didn't even know they were going to Nana's early. So they were very excited and they all jumped in the car and got on the road. And shortly after they got on the road, that was when Jane decided to call her mother and warn them that they would be there early, told her they'd be there in about four and a half hours. Jane's mother wasn't feeling very well and she was very surprised that they were going to be there early. So Jane assured her, don't worry about making a fast. Don't worry about making up the beds. We'll do it when we got there.
1: Why is this critical information?
2: It's critical because it makes it very difficult to imagine that someone could have planned the abduction knowing that they would be there because, like I said, it was unplanned for them to arrive on arrive on the Thursday night. So it's very unlikely for someone outside of the four of them to know that they were supposed to be there that morning.
1: And, Leah, what's also critical with the investigation is that trip to Kendall, because they made a couple of key stops, which I know you will explain.
2: Yeah, so the first stop was at a Caltech service station in Wyong so they could go to the toilet. That was just a very brief stop. And then the second stop was at a McDonald's in Raymond Terrace where they stopped to have dinner, as the foster parents explain
3: they would normally get a little bit more excited because the trip included, you know, at the halfway point, uh, stopping at their favourite little snack that they'd get, you know, which would be McDonald's. I mean, that's really <laughs> the only time that they would actually get it well yeah. on the way up uh, and on the way back, I think it was, because yeah. it's, it's the halfway point. And it, there's also a play area there for them to play in. They get their, you know, happy meal type thing and they got excited, but they're still excited about the overall journey, which was to, to Nana's, so that was... That was what they were
2: looking forward to. So they were there for about 15 minutes and Jane mentions in her police statement that she didn't notice anything suspicious along the way. We've actually got an actor reading Jane's police statement throughout this podcast.
4: We only used the toilets and left. None of us spoke to anyone else whilst we were stopped at McDonald's. There were no unusual incidents or occurrences we saw or were involved in during this stop.
1: And, Leah, we mentioned earlier there was another stop, a third stop on the way up to Kendall apart from the McDonald's stop. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, so after they left McDonald's and that stop at McDonald's was later verified by police who obtained security images of the family entering and leaving... Shortly after they left though they realized they'd forgotten to put pull-ups on the kids and obviously the kids fell asleep in the back seat so they needed to put pull-ups on them so they actually pulled over on the side of the road to do that and Jane talked about that in her police statement as well
4: About 5 to 7 minutes after we started driving I started talking to Peter about the kids not having their pull-ups on Pull-ups are like the nappy type pants children wear when they're sleeping We decided to quickly pull over and stop put pull-ups on the children and then continue on The area we stopped in was just on the side of the road, literally on the verge of the road. There were no other cars stopped in the area we were stopped in. It was pitch black and there was no lighting around. We were only stopped for about five minutes. There were no other people around in the area we stopped in. There were no unusual incidents or occurrences that I saw or were involved in during this stop. So, Leah, after the trip
1: from Sydney to Kendall, which is in northern New South Wales, they arrived to the house at about nine thirty at night. Take us through what Kendall is like because it's a rural community, which is very important in the ongoing investigation to William.
2: Kendall is a is a small rural town that makes up the Camden Haven region, which is it co- comprises about seven, Different towns, and Kendall itself is only about a population of a thousand people, and it's surrounded by bushland and farmland, with the coast on the east of of the town. Um, and it's important to note as well that Williams Foster grandmother's house, where they were staying. Was on the outskirts of town, so when they arrived, they drive through the town, which was obviously it was night time, so it was all closed up for the day, through the main street, and then out to Bennerin Drive, which is where the house is situated on the outskirts of town, on the edge of the bushland.
1: And Leah, you've been to that property many times over the years, as you've been involved in reporting on William's disappearance. Take us through that because whatever I've read or heard about their house is the silence is deafening. It's, it, it's that beautiful rural community where you can hear the birds singing and children laughing. So take us through that.
2: It's the kind of silence that really does strike you if you're from the city because you stand there on that street and you can hear a pin drop. You can hear everything happening around you. You can hear the birds in the distance. Even from inside any of the houses on the street, you can hear everything that happens outside in a, in a wide radius, including if a car drives past or if it turns around or if there's a conversation between neighbours out on the street You can hear everything and that's why everyone on that street is always aware of all the comings and goings because it is so quiet.
1: And do you think that's what makes William's disappearance even more baffling and chilling is the fact that the neighbours can see and hear everything? And as we know, William literally disappeared into thin air with no screams, no cries for help, nothing.
2: The interesting thing about this case is that if you stand on that street knowing what happened, It only becomes more baffling as to how this happened without any witnesses because it doesn't make any sense as to how a child could be taken in broad daylight on such a quiet street without anyone hearing or seeing anything.
1: So, Leah, take us through when the family arrived there about 9.30 at night after that long trip from Sydney. Everything was normal, of course, none of them knowing what was going to, the horrific circumstances that were going to unfold the next morning. They put the kids to bed. Everything was normal that night.
2: That's right. They pulled up in the driveway. The kids had been asleep in the back seat, so they were very sleepy. They took them out of their car seats, took them inside, greeted their nana, And then Jane brushed their teeth, put their pyjamas on and put them to bed in separate rooms. They had put them in the same room at Nana's house before, but as you know with little kids, you put them in the same room and they don't get much sleep. So they had got into the habit of having them sleep in separate rooms. Jane slept in one room with Lindsay and Peter slept in the other room with William. So they put the kids to bed and then proceeded to have a conversation with um, Jane's mother.
1: A critical bit of information as soon as they arrived, apart from getting unpacked and getting the kids to bed because it was late at night, is the fact that, the grandmother, foster grandmother, had mentioned a broken washing machine. Why is that important?
2: It's important because it ended up becoming quite a massive part of the police investigation and we will explain that in a later episode. But for the purposes of telling this early part of the story, as soon as they walked in the door, it was one of the first things that Jane's mother mentioned was that the washing machine was broken and that they wouldn't be able to do any washing while they were there. Jane then spoke about that particular conversation about the washing machine in her statement to police.
4: I asked her what was wrong with the washing machine. She told me that the washing machine was in pieces and a part had been ordered. I asked her how long ago the part had been ordered. She told me she didn't know, but the part has been ordered and when it's here, he will be here, referring to the repairman. I told Mum we need to find out when the part was going to arrive because you need to do your washing. She just said to me, well, you can do that in the morning. Leah, let's start, of
1: course, with the details of the morning that William disappeared, which, of course, was September 12, 2014. Tell us about how the morning started.
2: So Peter and William woke first, as always, about 6.30am, and being so early, Peter didn't want to wake the rest of the house, so they stayed in their room playing and William watched some stuff on the TV. I spoke to them about that recently.
3: I do remember on that day that... um, because uh, William, William and I were in one room, but uh, William wanted to watch. I think it was uh, Bananas in Pajamas or something like that off Five and Sam, and so we we're watching that in the morning. And so that was it was good fun because he was giggling and laughing and enjoying himself. And uh, and then his sister came in a little, a little bit later on. But it was all just you know, normal stuff. Every time we'd go there, it would be the normal stuff. So.
2: And that was the sound that you woke to that morning. Yeah, the, the laughter. The laughter.
3: Yeah. It yeah. was, his giggle, his giggle, his giggle was infectious.
0: Oh, uh, incredible. Yeah. People would hear that and nap. You couldn't help but smile. Yeah. And have such a strong, happy response to that. It's very special. Mm-hmm. Very, very special.
1: That's certainly something that comes through with their parents, Leah, is the yeah. fact that William was filled with such joy and happiness, wasn't he?
2: He really was. And one of my, Favorite and most heartbreaking videos of William is the one where he 's giggling, running towards the camera with his little backpack on <laughs>
4: Hello.
1: there is nothing like a child 's laughter, the joy in their eyes, the smile on their faces that changes your world, seeing the world through a child 's eyes and William's parents talk often about the very, very special relationship William had with his dad. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, they've often been described as inseparable because they really were like best friends and they've told me that that connection, even though they weren't biologically related, was just so special. You've spoken before about that special relationship um, between him and his dad. Mm. Can you talk about that?
0: It's, it's hard to put into words. It's, you could feel the link. You could feel the relationship and the joy that was on his face whenever he was in um, his dad's arms and they, it was just two peas in a pod. They just belonged together. They melted together. He was just um, watching the two of them together was just incredibly precious.
5: Well, yeah,
1: that must be heartbreaking for the family, hearing that remind you yet again this is a story not just about William disappearing but the heartbroken family and friends left behind.
2: Yeah, it is It is so obvious listening to them talk about him and their relationship with him, just how much this little boy was loved.
1: Let's get back to that morning if we can when he disappeared because we've just heard just beautifully then about the special bond that William and his dad had and that they were up and they were watching TV as all normal families do Talk to us about Jane. What happened next? She got up and walked into the lounge room.
2: Yeah, so she told Lindsay to get up and and join her brother and and father in the next room, which she did because Jane was hoping to get a little bit more sleep. But that didn't end up happening. (laughs) After about five minutes, they all got up and they all went into the living room. And William and Lindsay went straight to the toy cupboard to get some toys out and started bringing them out into the living area to play. And that was when Jane. Went to the veranda, the glass sliding doors that opened out onto the balcony, and opened up the curtains.
1: And what did she see, and why is that so important?
2: This is a moment that will later become very significant to the police investigation and remains significant to this day. What she sees when she looks out that window, she doesn't recall seeing until several days after he disappeared, but it will become significant and I will explain that in a future episode. And we'll
1: talk about it in a second because I didn't realise this either. When all the kids were out playing on their bikes, Lindsay saw some critical information regarding some cars, which we'll come to in just a moment. But yet again the Spider-Man comes back. You were talking about them getting their cars out and toys and having lots of fun and we know that William was obsessed with this Spider-Man superhero costume. As a mother of boys, as all boys, and girls are obsessed with their superhero costumes... And he was adamant that he was going to wear it that day.
2: Yeah, so William and Lindsay had gone in to wake their nana up and that's when Jane told them it was time to get dressed for the day. Lindsay was old enough to get herself dressed so she went and did that and then Jane took William into his room to get him dressed and that's, of course, when he demanded to wear his Spider-Man outfit.
0: I remember the discussion I had with William about putting on his Spider-Man clothes because I wanted him to wear a singlet he didn't want to wear a singlet, so the compromise was he'd wear a Spider-Man T-shirt underneath his Spider-Man clothes, so he was spider maned out completely.
1: Leah, life is normal. They're all getting ready for the morning, playing with toys. William's dressed in his Spider-Man outfit. They're having a beautiful time at Nana's house and then Peter has to go to a work meeting. This is a really vital part of the morning.
2: Yeah, so that morning Peter was preparing for an online business meeting. So obviously his work was in Sydney, but he regularly did meetings online, similar to a Skype call, a similar program. The problem was that on Benaroon Drive, the internet, the phone signal is not great and he knew that being having been there many times before and had these meetings many times before. So he would always drive to a nearby larger town with better internet signal and sit in his car for the duration of the meeting. That's what he was preparing to do that morning.
1: There was a lot of speculation though, especially in the initial few months, Leah, that there was something very sus about Peter going to this meeting, that he was not there when William disappeared. How does the family cope with that, you know, the, the the losing William but also knowing and being aware that a lot of people suspected they were involved?
2: Yeah, this has been a huge point of contention ever since that day because Peter wasn't there and people speculated about where he was and whether it was necessary for him to go into a different town to get better internet signal. So I actually asked them to clarify this point when I spoke to them recently.
3: So it's a tool that I use called you know, GoToMeeting, right? It's similar to, to, to a Skype meeting, but you need to have a, a decent amount of data coming down the pipe and going back up when you're actually doing an online meeting, right? Now, we've been going out there for years and when, you know, it's almost like you have to stand on a crate with your left foot, you know, in and, and, and some sort <laughs> of angular way to actually get a decent signal there. But you need more data signal to be able to do a particular meeting using this tool, Right. So I had to fill a script anyway, so my heads went down there, sat in my car, which I've done on hundreds and hundreds of occasions, did my meeting there, good coverage, did my meeting uh, and then went to the chemist, filled the
0: script and then hit him back. There was not good mobile strength and it made sense. He had to go and get the script, so do the whole thing at once. It was just convenience.
1: So Peter had gone to the meeting and Jane was preparing breakfast for the kids and then the washing machine conversation came up again and Jane actually called the repairman, didn't she?
2: Yeah, so Jane asked her mother about the broken washing machine again and she was told that she had called a repairman in, in an ad, from an ad in the local paper and that he was waiting on a part before he could come and fix the washing machine. Jane also recalled that conversation in her statement to police and the voice message that she left for the repairman. Again, this isn't her real voice.
4: I asked Mum when the parts were expected and Mum said, that's not the way it happens here. I said, well, how long has it been? She said, I don't know, dear. He'll just be here when he's here. I cannot remember what the recorded message said exactly, but I said something to the effect of, this is Margaret's daughter speaking. You came to see my mum's washing machine. Have the parts arrived? Please call me. That's all I said before I hung up the phone. Mum said, he won't call. He'll just arrive. That's the way it's done here, dear. By that she meant that because it's a small country town, a person providing a service like this would just show up at the house with the parts when they have them as opposed to phoning and arranging a time. And,
1: Leah, that fateful morning the kids had finished breakfast and wanted to head straight outside. They were so excited about riding their bikes and, of course, William had a new BMX bike.
2: Yeah, he got a new BMX bike for his third birthday earlier and he was very excited about
0: it and riding it every chance he got we'd got him a bike for his birthday. So we'd all go bike riding together and he was just in heaven. He was just, it's just, we've got pictures of William riding this bike and there is just unbridled joy just yeah. over his face. He was just free and he we would have, and he was really good. I Just racing, it, just wanted to get on that bike and just ride it.
1: And Leah, yet again, William, known for his joyous laughter and his giggles. And we've got some audio from a recent home video where William was riding his new BMX bike.
3: Hey, and let's see if I can catch up with William. Woohoo! Here I come. Where's that William guy? You're doing really well. Here I come, William. I'm right next to you.
1: And, Leah, that morning, of course, Jane was out riding the bikes with William and Lindsay, and Lindsay yet again noticed something very interesting in the cul-de-sac where her grandmother lived, didn't she?
2: Yeah, so William and Lindsay had been racing their bikes up and down the driveway. Margaret and Jane were watching on, and then Lindsay suddenly stopped in the middle of the driveway because she saw a car that had driven past and her and Jane both took note of that car. Jane talks about this in her police
4: statement. Lindsay said, "'Who's that car, Mummy?' I looked out onto the road and saw a dark green, grey sedan drive past Mum's house, up Benaroon Drive, towards the Millers' house next door. The car just nosed into the Millers' driveway and then backed out of the driveway. I said to Lindsay, I don't know, probably the neighbour. I said that because I thought that the Millers were home and I think they have a car that is sort of similar to that. The last time I saw the car was when it had turned around in the miller's driveway and had literally just started driving back down the street. The car looked like it was driving with a purpose, as opposed to slowly driving along like someone was looking for something. I would have seen the car for less than 10 seconds from when I first saw it until I last saw it. I can't remember whether the windows were down. I couldn't see any of the occupants. But this time I turned my attention back towards Lindsay, riding the bike as she has started riding again.
1: Now, Leah, of course, noticing that car, and we mentioned it earlier, the sightings of the car and what was happening in that cul-de-sac are very important
2: later on, aren't they? They are, and we will come back to that and explain it in detail in a later episode. So
1: after the kids finish riding their bikes, they jump back inside. I think um, Jane was keen to keep them inside, but William had different ideas and wanted to get straight back outside. And what did they start playing then?
2: Yeah. So being a little boy, William didn't last long inside. After about 10 minutes, he wanted to get back outside and play. Lindsay stayed inside with her Nana and Jane took William outside to play a game that they called Mummy Monsters, which was basically running around, chasing each other, roaring, pretending to be monsters.
1: After they were playing Mummy Monsters, William went back inside and they decided to actually do some drawings for someone very special.
2: Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, Jane's elderly father had passed away earlier that year and she wanted the kids to draw some pictures for their opa, which is what they called him because he was Dutch. They were going to visit his gravesite later that day for the first time since his funeral and the cemetery was actually only a couple of hundred metres from the house on Benarin Drive. So she took them out into the patio and set them up on the decking with some paper and pencils and crayons and... The kids went and got some leaves from the garden so they could use it in their drawings for Opa.
1: And Leah, of course, on that veranda where they were drawing those beautiful little pictures is where Jane took those last iconic yet incredibly tragic photos of little William in that Spider Man outfit.
2: Yeah, so that photo that's obviously since been released to the media being the last photo that was ever taken of him, has since become so iconic in association with this case. If you Google William Tyrrell, that photo photo. dominates the results. And it is incredibly tragic to think of it being taken just minutes before he disappeared. And I spoke to them about that photo recently. And that iconic photo that now has become Mm. iconic of him that you took on that day... What goes through your
4: head
3: when you see that now? It's mixed for me. Mm. Um, It's both um, seeing his face, you know, the joy at play there, but it also meant that, you know, I feel like I've lost.
4: Yeah.
3: I feel like I've lost. um, You know, I feel like he's lost the opportunity for everything for him and for... For us,
0: it's bittersweet. I actually don't like looking at that photo. I like looking at all the other photos we've got.
5: They
0: mm. show, they show him, and they're just jewels. Yeah, yeah. We've given, we've given a lot in terms of pictures of him and those sorts of things. And there is just so many things that we. Um, I like looking at the other pictures I've got. So, Leah, these are the
1: critical final moments before William disappeared and he he was never seen again. Take us through what happened after the kids went inside, after drawing the beautiful pictures for their grandfather, what happened?
2: So Jane asked them both if they wanted to write any messages on their pictures for Opa. Lindsay told her what she wanted written on her picture and Jane wrote it on there. But William didn't want anything written on his, so he went back out onto the patio to play with his nana watching on. Lindsay and Jane then joined them shortly after. Lindsay picked up the pencil container and tipped it out onto the patio and some dice rolled out. So they started playing a game with the dice where Jane would roll the dice and whatever number came up, Lindsay would jump that many times. William joined in as well and they played that for a little while and then Jane taught William how to roll the dice, which he thought was fun for a while. But being a little boy, he got bored quite quickly. So he jumped off the side of the patio onto the grass and started playing another game that he called Daddy Tiger.
4: And Jane spoke about this in her police statement. He pretended to be Daddy Tiger. He wanted Lindsay to play, but she continued drawing. He crawled around on the ground for a bit playing Tiger. He walked around the side of the house. I told him to make sure he stays close on the grass. I heard roar. It sounded really close and loud, like he was just around the corner. Mum and I laughed and we spoke to Lindsay. After a couple of minutes, I thought, oh, he's quiet.
1: So, Leah, at the time when this is happening, Lindsay is there, correct? Jane, William and Margaret, the grandmother, is also there.
2: Yeah, Margaret was sitting on the patio having her cup of tea. So she recounts that moment in her statement to police as well.
4: William lost interest in drawing pictures and rolling the dice and he ran down the two small stairs of the back patio onto the grass and he ran around the right-hand side of the house. About five minutes had passed and Jane said, Mum, he's a little bit quiet.
1: We now know that that silence meant that William was gone. He had just disappeared.
2: Jane got up from the patio when she realised that he was quiet. She walked around the corner looking out onto that grassed area, expecting to see him playing there where he was supposed to be playing. But she couldn't see him.
0: I think back to that, that moment where I just went, I can't hear him. Why, why, why can't I hear him? And I walked around, it was just two metres, three metres away from where we were sitting. And I've just walked out and I just see nothing. I I see nothing. I hear nothing. I I'm speechless. I'm walking around in a circle on the spot thinking, "Where is he? Why can't I see him?" Mm. And I'm yelling out, "William, where are you? You need to talk to Mummy. Tell me where you are. I can't see you. I can't hear you. Where where are you?" And he was nowhere. And I just and I'm just standing there thinking, "How could he just disappear?"
1: of course, we now know that that is the very moment that William's life, his precious little life, and his family and friends' lives changed forever. Of course, everyone wants to know what happened next. But before we get there, what else can we find out?
2: So before we go into what happened next, next week we're actually going to take you right back to the start to when William was born and talk about his very short life before he went missing. Because, as we know, William was a foster child, so he had already been through a lot in his three short years that led him to where he went missing on Benaroon Drive that day.
5: William Tyrrell is produced and presented by Leah Harris in conversation with Natasha Belling produced and edited by Stuart Buckland the recording and audio work by the 10 team of Mitch Willard Bevan Tantu and Josh Pollock additional voices by Sophie Hicks Lloyd and Suze Perryman production assistant to Lula Thompson thanks go to Sophie Hicks Lloyd Ross Dagan, Jared Coe and Anthony Murdoch for their assistance you can contact the show at, at network 10comau If you have any information that may assist this case at all, please contact police or Crime Stoppers on one 333 0 If you would like to find out more about the Where's William campaign, please visit www.where'swilliam.org. You can also assist with the search by making a tax-deductible donation there. This has been a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.